Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and this is today's episode of our Truth Tidbits, episode 176, as we continue reading through the scriptures this year. We are in the book of Romans, and today we will make more progress in Romans chapter 3. I'd like to begin by reading, beginning in verse 1, but we're really going to focus on verses 9 through 20 today. So let me read Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So today, let's pick up in verse 9. We looked at circumcision versus uncircumcision. We've talked about that. We've talked about all of the different categories that Paul has described here in the first three chapters. We've looked at several of those things in earlier episodes. And in the last episode, we specifically addressed chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Today, I really want to look at verses 9 through 20. Because Paul has laid out a solid case in chapters 1 through 3 so far 
of the condition of mankind apart from God, apart from true faith in Jesus Christ, apart from salvation. And he says right here, basically the conclusion of that matter is that all, both Jew and Greek, both Jews and Gentiles, all are under sin. All of us stand guilty apart from Jesus Christ before a holy God. That's his conclusion. He, he lays out the case that God is no respecter of persons. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. We wrote, we read uh, in another place in the last episode where he says Jew or Gentile, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. Whoever you are, without Jesus Christ, without truly being born again and saved through simple faith in Jesus Christ, you and I would stand guilty before a holy God. There is no respect or a person's with God. There's no partiality. There's no difference. Jew or Greek both stand in need of a Savior, sinful and guilty, under sin. That word under is speaking of being under the influence of or under the subjection of. In other words, you're a slave to it. You're under the subjection of that. It's, it's like you're intoxicated. You know, someone intoxicated with alcohol or drugs are under the influence of that. And that's what he's talking about here. All are sinners apart from God. And then he quotes a long list here of various verses from the Old Testament, many of them from the Psalms. And we won't look at every single one, but I do want to look at several of them, a few of them. Let's turn first to Psalm chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 14, verse 1 says this, and David is writing here. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. So, so far, we have the witness of David here in the psalm and of Paul quoting David in the psalm. And Paul declares the psalms to be the scriptures. He says it is written, same thing that Jesus said about the words of the Lord from the Old Testament when he was tempted by the enemy. So we know that these two, the mouth of these two are both attesting. There's none righteous. No, not one. Next, let's look at Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. Another place where this is written. And this is also written by David again in a second place. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. Here again, he reiterates, God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Every one of them has turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. 
Then let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we want to read verse 20. Now, this was written by Solomon. So now Solomon is also concurring with both Paul and David. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So here again, another witness to the fact that none of us are sin-free. We are all sinners. We all stand guilty before a holy God. You can also look up Psalm 5, verse 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, most all of Psalm chapter 10, Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, and Psalm 36, verse 1. I'd like to look at that one, but all of these are part of the quote that Paul uses in Romans chapter 3. Psalm 36, verse 1 says this, David is writing and he says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now, Paul quotes that also here in Romans chapter 3. And it's important for us to understand that sinful man, sinful woman, sinful mankind has no fear of God in them. They, they don't take God seriously. This is what he's saying. They're sinful. They're wicked. They're going their own way. They want to live that way. They want to live it up. They want to just eat and drink and be merry. There's no fear of God in them. They are not taking God seriously. They don't recognize their need to obey the Lord. No seriousness about sin, at least until and unless they begin to be under the conviction work of the Spirit of the living God. When the Lord begins to convict sinners and their heart begins to be softened to hear that conviction and to receive it, that's when the Holy Spirit of God is drawing them. But prior to that, there's, there's no seriousness about sin or its consequences. So let's consider in Romans 3, let's understand how verse 9, and then he quotes all of those passages, and verse 19 connect together. And Paul is saying here, basically, the Jew is not exempt. The Jew also is in a sinful condition before a holy God, just like any Gentile or Greek person was as well. And what Paul is teaching them through these passages and through these writings here in chapter 2 and 3, is that the law of God, the Torah, only proves that we are sinners. It proves our need for salvation. It proves that we cannot keep it and that we have no excuse. Every mouth will be stopped and all will be speechless. The law, Paul tells us in another place, was our tutor to teach us and bring us to Christ. It was designed to point us to Christ. As a matter of fact, the word Torah means to give direction to. 
2.2. It's just like when John the Baptist came on the scene and he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the answer to the sin problem. Let me point him out to you. He's the one you need to see. You can't keep all these 613 commandments. It's impossible. And according to James, if you mess up in one, you're guilty of all of them. You might as well not have kept any. You're guilty of all. So the Torah brings us to Christ. It points us to our need for a Savior. It proves that we cannot keep it. It also gives us no excuse, but it points us to the one who is the perfect one, who is the sinless one, who is the Savior, who can redeem us from the curse of the law. Because just like we looked at him, everyone who doesn't keep it is cursed. And God has made provision for that. But Paul says here that Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under it. That actually means, and it can be translated better, in it. In other words, it's in the fixed position of, and it it includes, it's interesting, it includes a relation of rest. So in other words, those people, the Jewish people, particularly Paul is addressing here at this point concerning the law, because they were kind of resting and boasting in the law, in the fact that they were Jewish, in the fact that they were God's chosen people. Now, are the Jewish people God's chosen people? Yes, they are. But when it comes to salvation, just being a Jew does not save a person. That's what Paul is telling them here. You are resting your laurels and boasting, thinking that you are safe and covered because you are in the law. But the truth, however, is that you are without excuse because the law proves itself that you can't keep it. The law proves itself that you are guilty before a holy God and in need of a Savior. So verse 20, he summarizes chapter 3's argument, And all of the the circumcision aspects he's discussed from chapter 2, all of those topics that we've covered, he concludes this, the law cannot save you. Circumcision and resting in the law is unable to save you. It is impossible. It cannot be done. I want us to now look at a few other passages Let's first of all go to Galatians chapter 3, and we did read this in detail and discuss it in detail yesterday. I just want to read verses 10 through 14 today. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Same thing that James confirms to us as well in his book. In other words, there is a curse written into the law in the book of Leviticus, we looked at it yesterday, where if you don't keep everything, you're cursed. So every one of us were under that curse. The Jewish people without Jesus Christ are under that curse. Continuing in the reading, verse 11, 
but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. In other words, it's proven clear nobody can keep all 613 commandments. Can't be done. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. In other words, if you're in the law, you've got you to keep on striving to keep them or whatever, and you keep on being condemned because you can't keep them. But it's, it's just a cyclical thing. It's a vicious cycle. Notice verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Jesus Christ came as the solution and is the one and only one who can redeem anyone from the curse of the law. Let's look next at James chapter 2, verse 10. I'm just going to read it. We've already referenced it earlier. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So we just saw that in Paul's writings in Galatians. Now we read and James has confirmed that for us. Now, I want to close out today by looking at a few passages from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, I'm, I'm just about to begin a study on Hebrews and begin to post that online. And we're going to go through the book of Hebrews in depth. I've taught this once before, and I really believe impressed in my heart that we need to do that again. I need to do that and put, make that available to you. That was a class I taught live at my church, uh, but I do believe that I need to make that available. And so I will be doing that, Lord willing, here in the next short future here. But I want to read a few passages because Hebrews is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's what helps us connect the two and bring so much revelation and understanding of both in light of the other. So let's just look at, in reference to our topic today, a few passages from Hebrews. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14 through 19, it says this, For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. So this chapter, he's talking about priesthood and Melchizedek priesthood versus the Levitical priesthood, etc. Verse 15, And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies... For he, meaning God, testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So he's just pointing out here the law could make nothing and no one perfect. It was not able to do that. And there was a need for this better hope, and God has provided that. Let's look next at Hebrews chapter 8. And we read this section yesterday. I want to read it again. I may read just 
sections of it. But in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13, this is in reference to the new covenant. I'll read verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. In other words, if the Mosaic law, if that first covenant God made with his people in the Mosaic law would have been able to do the job, do you think God in heaven would have given his own son's blood on the cross for us if the law could have done the job? No, that's what he's saying here. Skip down to verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, which is what he just told us about in the verses in between, quoting Jeremiah the prophet from Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 13 of Hebrews 8. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, or it's it's out of date, it's worn out, it's done its job, and it's not needed anymore because the new has come. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, it's not that the law is useless to us, not at all. And if you want to understand that more, you can look at the archives for my The Cross is the Filter series. It's a short two-lesson series, but in there I cover that in detail. But he is saying that the law's purpose has now been fulfilled. The law's purpose was to prove that we need a Savior. It was the tutor to point us to Jesus Christ. It was the tutor to bring us to the Messiah the Savior, Yeshua, that has now come. And because he's now come, because the new is here, the old doesn't work anymore. It's worn out and we we have learned what we needed to learn from it and we come and put our faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. Last place in the book of Hebrews that I want to read today is in Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 1 through 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. In other words, if you could have come once and offered a a lamb and gotten forgiveness of your sins that was permanent and that was lasting, then you wouldn't have come back every year after year after year. Or you wouldn't have had to come back every time you messed up. That's what he's saying here. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. In other words, if that would have done the job, the worshipers wouldn't have even been ashamed or guilty anymore. They wouldn't have messed up. So they wouldn't have had a need to come back. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You might want to highlight or underline that verse. It is not possible that the blood of any animals could take away sins. He's specifically talking here in reference to the once a year day of atonement. And what he's saying is 
Those things were a yearly reminder that you are in need of a Savior. But there's no way that any of these animals we're offering can take away sin. It can't happen. They simply covered it temporarily. But there was one coming, and John pointed him out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hallelujah. Continuing reading in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when he, meaning Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And he knew what that will was. It's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him or to strike him, to smite him. We also see it in Zechariah. I believe it's in chapter 11 where it talks about how the shepherd will be stricken and the sheep will be scattered in Jesus. Even It was even quoted and fulfilled when Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus came knowing the sacrifice that he had to make. And he came to do the will of the Lord because he knew that it was not possible for anything or anyone else to cover or to take away the sins of the world. He had to do it. And he knew he had to do it. And he loved us enough that he came and did it. Verse 8 of chapter 10, continuing. Previously saying, sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No more annual sacrifices. Jesus will never be smitten again. He will never die on a cross again. There'll never be another need for any other Savior. He died once for all and paid the penalty so that he could redeem us from under the curse of the law because we were unable to keep it. Praise God. The law was unable to bring salvation and had no inherent Savior in it. A greater Savior, a true Savior was needed and the law proved that. The good news that we will soon get into in future episodes is that He came. The Savior has come. Praise God. I pray that this has been a blessing to you today. And Lord willing, you can join us again for future episodes of Truth Tidbits. God bless you.
in Jesus' name.